Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis Chapter 13, The New Look Epigraph This wall I was many a weary month in finishing, and yet never thought myself safe till it was done. Defoe, Robinson Crusoe The rest of my war experiences have little to do with this story. How I took about 60 prisoners, that is, discovered to my great relief that the crowd of field-gray figures who suddenly appeared from nowhere all had their hands up, is not worth telling, save as a joke. Did not Falstaff take Sir Colville of the Dale? Nor does it concern the reader to know how I got a sound blighty from an English shell, or how the exquisite Sister N in the CCS has ever since embodied my idea of Artemis. Two things stand out. One is the moment, just after I had been hit, when I found, or thought I found, that I was not breathing, and concluded that this was death. I felt no fear, and certainly no courage. It did not seem to be an occasion for either. The proposition, here is a dying man, stood before my mind as dry, as factual, as unemotional as something in a textbook. It was not even interesting. The fruit of this experience was that when, some years later, I met Kant's distinction between the noumenal and the phenomenal self, it was more to me than an abstraction. I had tasted it. I had proved that there was a fully conscious I whose connections with the me of introspection were loose and transitory. The other momentous experience was that of reading Bergson in a convalescent camp on Salisbury Plain. Intellectually, this taught me to avoid the snares that lurk about the word nothing. But it also had a revolutionary effect on my emotional outlook. Hitherto, my whole bent had been towards things pale, remote, and evanescent, the watercolor world of Morris, the leafy recesses of Mallory, the twilight of Yeats. The word life had for me pretty much the same associations it had for Shelley in The Triumph of Life. I would not have understood what Goethe meant by des Lebens goldness Baum, Bergson showed me. He did not abolish my old loves, but he gave me a new one. From him I first learned to relish energy, fertility, and urgency, the resource, the triumphs, and even the insolence of things that grow. I became capable of appreciating artists who would, I believe, have meant nothing to me before. All the resonant, dogmatic, flaming, unanswerable people like Beethoven, Titian in his mythological pictures, Goethe, Dunbar, Pindar, Christopher Wren, and the more exultant Psalms. I returned to Oxford, demobbed, in January 1919. But before I say anything of my life there, I must warn the reader that one huge and complex episode will be omitted. I have no choice about this reticence. All I can or need say is that my earlier hostility to the emotions was very fully and variously avenged. But even were I free to tell the story, I doubt if it has much to do with the subject of the book. The first lifelong friend I made at Oxford was A.K. Hamilton Jenkin, since known for his books on Cornwall. He continued what Arthur had begun 
my education as a seeing, listening, smelling, receptive creature. Arthur had had his preference for the homely, but Jenkins seemed to be able to enjoy everything, even ugliness. I learned from him that we should attempt a total surrender to whatever atmosphere was offering itself at the moment, in a squalid town to seek out those very places where its squalor rose to grimness and almost grandeur, on a dismal day to find the most dismal and dripping wood, on a windy day to seek the windiest ridge. There was no betchamanic irony about it, only a serious yet gleeful determination to rub one's nose in the very quiddity of each thing, to rejoice in its being, so magnificently, what it was. My next was Owen Barfield. There is a sense in which Arthur and Barfield are the types of every man's first and second friend. The first is the alter ego, the man who first reveals to you that you are not alone in the world by turning out, beyond hope, to share all your most secret delights. There is nothing to be overcome in making him your friend. He and you join like raindrops on a window. But the second friend is the man who disagrees with you about everything. He is not so much the alter ego as the anti-self. Of course, he shares your interests. Otherwise, he would not become your friend at all. But he has approached them all at a different angle. He has read all the right books, but has got the wrong thing out of every one. It is as if he spoke your language, but mispronounced it. How can he be so nearly right, and yet, invariably, just not right? He is fascinating, and infuriating as a woman. When you set out to correct his heresies, you find that he, forsooth, has decided to correct yours. And then you go at it, hammer and tongs, far into the night, night after night, or walking through fine country that neither gives a glance to, each learning the weight of the other's punches, and often more like mutually respectful enemies than friends. Actually, though it never seems so at the time, you modify one another's thoughts. Out of this perpetual dogfight, a community of mind and a deep affection emerge. But I think he changed me a good deal more than I him. Much of the thought which he afterwards put into poetic diction had already become mine before that important little book appeared. It would be strange if it had not. He was, of course, not so learned then as he has since become but the genius was already there. Closely linked with Barfield of Wadham was his friend, and soon mine, A.C. Harwood of the House, later a pillar of Michael Hall, the Steinerite school at Kidbrook. He was different from either of us, a wholly imperturbable man. Though poor, like most of us, and wholly without prospects, he wore the expression of a 19th century gentleman with something in the funds. On a walking tour, when the last light of a wet evening had just revealed some ghastly error in map reading, probably his own, and the best hope was five miles to Mudham, if we could find it, and we might get beds there, he still wore that expression. In the heat of the argument, he wore it still. You would think that he, if anyone, would have been told to take that look off his face, but I don't believe he ever was. It was no mask and came from no stupidity. He has been tried since by all the usual sorrows and anxieties. He is the sole Horatio known to me in this age of Hamlet's. No stop for fortune's finger. There is one thing to be said about these and other friends whom I made at Oxford. They were all, by decent pagan standards, much more by so low a standard as mine, good. That is, 
They all, like my friend Johnson, believed and acted on the belief that veracity, public spirit, chastity, and sobriety were obligatory, to be attempted, as the examiners say, by all candidates. Johnson had prepared me to be influenced by them. I accepted their standards in principle, and perhaps, this part I do not very well remember, tried to act accordingly. During my first two years at Oxford, I was busily engaged, apart from doing mods and beginning greats, in assuming what we may call an intellectual new look. There was to be no more pessimism, no more self-pity, no flirtations with any idea of the supernatural, no romantic delusions. In a word, like the heroine of Northanger Abbey, I formed the resolution of always judging and acting in future with the greatest good sense. And good sense meant, for me at that moment, a retreat, almost a panic-stricken flight, from all of that romanticism which had hitherto been the chief concern of my life. Several causes operated together. For one thing, I had recently come to know an old, dirty, gabbling, tragic Irish parson who had long since lost his faith but retained his living. By the time I met him, his only interest was the search for evidence of human survival. On this he read and talked incessantly, and, having a highly critical mind, could never satisfy himself. What was especially shocking was that the ravenous desire for personal immortality coexisted in him with, apparently, a total indifference to all that could, on a sane view, make immortality desirable. He was not seeking the beatific vision, and did not even believe in God. He was not hoping for more time in which to purge and improve his own personality. He was not dreaming of reunion with dead friends or lovers. I never heard him speak with affection of anybody. All he wanted was the assurance that something he could call himself would, on almost any terms, last longer than his bodily life. So, at least, I thought, I was too young and hard to suspect that what secretly moved him was a thirst for the happiness which had been wholly denied him on earth, and his state of mind appeared to me the most contemptible I had ever encountered. Any thoughts or dreams which might lead one into that fierce monomania were, I decided, to be utterly shunned. The whole question of immortality became rather disgusting to me. I shut it out. All one's thoughts must be confined to the very world, which is the world, of all of us, the place where, in the end, we find our happiness, or not at all. Secondly, it had been my chance to spend fourteen days, and most of the fourteen nights as well, in close contact with a man who was going mad. He was a man whom I had dearly loved, and well he deserved love, and now I helped to hold him while he kicked and wallowed on the floor, screaming out that devils were tearing him, and that he was that moment falling down into hell. And this man, as I well knew, had not kept the beaten track. He had flirted with theosophy, yoga, spiritualism, psychoanalysis, what not. Probably these things had, in fact, no connection with his insanity, for which, I believe, there were physical causes. But it did not seem so to me at the time. I thought I had seen a warning. It was to this, this raving on the floor, that all romantic longings and unearthly speculations led a man in the end. Be not too wildly amorous of the far, nor lure thy fantasy to its utmost scope. 
Safety first, thought I. The beaten track, the approved road, the center of the road, the lights on. For some months after that nightmare fortnight, the words ordinary and humdrum summed up everything that appeared to me most desirable. Thirdly, the new psychology was at that time sweeping through us all. We did not swallow it whole, few people then did, but we were all influenced. What we were most concerned about was fantasy, or wishful thinking. For, of course, we were all poets and critics and set a very great value on imagination in some high Coleridgean sense, so that it became important to distinguish imagination, not only, as Coleridge did, from fancy, but also from fantasy, as the psychologists understand that term. Now what, I asked myself, were all my delectable mountains and western gardens but sheer fantasies? Had they not revealed their true nature by luring me, time and again, into undisguisedly erotic reverie or the squalid nightmare of magic? In reality, of course, as previous chapters have told, my own experience had repeatedly shown that these romantic images had never been more than a sort of flash, or even slag, thrown off by the occurrence of joy that those mountains and gardens had never been what I wanted, but only symbols which professed themselves to be no more, and that every effort to treat them as the real desirable soon honestly proved itself to be a failure. But now, busy with my new look, I managed to forget this. Instead of repenting my idolatry, I vilified the unoffending images on which I had lavished it. With the confidence of a boy, I decided I had done with all that. No more Avalon. No more Hesperides. I had, this was very precisely the opposite of the truth, seen through them, and I was never going to be taken in again. Finally, there was, of course, Bergson. Somehow or other, for it does not seem very clear when I reopen his books today, I found in him a refutation of the old haunting idea, Schopenhauer's idea, that the universe might not have existed. In other words, one divine attribute, that of necessary existence, rose above my horizon. It was still, and long after, attached to the wrong subject, to the universe, not to God. But the mere attribute was itself of immense potency. When once one has dropped the absurd notion that reality is an arbitrary alternative to nothing, one gives up being a pessimist, or even an optimist. There is no sense in blaming or praising the whole, nor, indeed, in saying anything about it. Even if you persist in hurling Promethean or Hardy-esque defiances at it, then, since you are a part of it, it is only that same whole which, through you, quietly declaims the cursings of itself. A futility which seems to me to vitiate Lord Russell's stirring essay on the worship of a free man. Cursings were as futile and as immature as dreams about the Western Garden. One must, like Carlyle's lady, accept the universe. Totally, with no reservations, loyally. This sort of stoical monism was the philosophy of my new look, and it gave me a great sense of peace. It was perhaps the nearest thing to a religious experience which I had had since my prep school days. It ended, I hope forever, any idea of a treaty or compromise with reality. So much the perception of even one divine attribute can do. Tis the gift to be simple. 
Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.